Hey, it's Kim from the Conscious Kitchen podcast, where we mix healing and vulnerability into a spicy soup of nail-biting conversations. Join me this season because we're healing no matter what the fuck happens. Hey, everyone. I'm so, so, so pumped, like beyond excited and thrilled to be interviewing Susanna. Susanna of Decolonizing Yoga. Um, For background, Susanna is one of the people whose content consistently consistently inspires me on my journey especially as like a brown queer immigrant human being trying to learn more about you know my spiritual roots um there's very few people who truly inspire me to continue that journey and Susanna is very much one of them so I'm so thrilled to have you on Susanna an absolute freaking honor thank you thank you thank you Thank you. I am really, really excited to be here and to talk with you. And I feel the same way about your content. Yay! Well, I wanted to first ask you this question of, you know, how you got started. So the question is just, what provoked you or inspired you to get started on this journey of advocating for decolonizing yoga? Yes. Well, for folks who can't see me, I just want to pause and say I'm a a light brown skinned, cis woman um, with long brown hair. And I look visibly like not that identifiable, right? Like I definitely look like a person of color, but like, "Mm, where is she from? It's something I heard all through my life. And a lot of my life was shaped by that, the not being seen as someone that belonged, but also very clearly being seen as other. And I internalized that. My father is from India, from Northeast India and Assam, and my mom is British. And so I'm mixed. I'm an immigrant to the United States and was just like, who am I? Like, how do I fit in? Where, where, what, is my identity and how do I make sense of this? And because of the U.S. doing what the U.S. does, right, and oppression doing what it does, the answers in the early years for me and and folks listening might connect to this were to completely try to just conform to dominant culture and be as, like, normal as possible. And normal, read white right? Like as white as possible. And some of us don't even have the option at all to do that. So I want to also acknowledge and kind of note my privilege to even be ambiguous enough. Like I never passed, but I could be like ambiguous. And and yet there was so much pain in that of disowning the fullness of who I was, of trying to suppress, you know, the people who raised me and who I grew up alongside are all my aunties and uncles and are steeped in yoga culture and Vedic culture. And that was what they were sharing with me. And then I'd go to school or be out in the world and be acting like, you know, oh, that's not me. I'm not, you know, that. Or like, so all of that led to a lot of confusion, but then, and stress and anxiety and like breakdowns of different kinds. Again, folks might relate to that. And then what helped me what were the practices of yoga, but not like going to a yoga class at a studio. That didn't feel good. But what felt good were the practices my father taught me or my aunts were sharing, like 
guided meditations for dealing with stress or mantra that could help me with the next exam that I was taking in school. And so I was like, oh, these things that I'm trying to disown are actually the things that are helping me. And at a certain point, it clicked of like, I can't deny that one, this is a part of my family, my culture, my blood, my whole way of being. And two, um, it's really valuable and I need to connect to it and embrace it and go deeper in it. And then it did that for a little while and then realized, wait a second, this is yoga and this comes from our people. And, you know, mindfulness meditation like is a such a deep rooted Asian tradition, South Asian and Asian, right? And then in the West, in the US, none of that is what we see. Like the spiritual roots are completely stripped out. And so what brought me on that journey to decolonizing yoga was really, I think, my own suffering and then the path to healing, like healing that and seeing, oh, I'm much more whole when I'm embracing who I am and where I come from and the practices that kind of knit me back together. And then speaking up about that and having other people say, wait, I feel that too. Yeah. Ooh, this is so good. And tell me a little bit about how growing up, right? So you notice that, wow, these practices have always been a part of my lineage. These practices have been a part of my family's culture and being. And then growing up and noticing, maybe now in modern day, for example, seeing how we in the West have interpreted yoga. And it's not even just yoga. It's like all of the theory, all of the Eastern spiritual practice. Have you? Did you have a moment or several moments where you were like, wait a minute, like, wait, why are we doing like hot yoga for cardio? And yeah. why is it that only we, so many of us think that that's the only way to do yoga? Was there like an aha moment for you? Absolutely. There were a few. And I remember going to a puja at my aunt's house. And this a puja is like a ritual ceremony. And we had a fire and we were chanting. We were doing some different practices for one of our other family members that was going to have some health, you know, care stuff taken care of. And we wanted to do like a blessing for him. And we were there late. There was food. You know, it was just a really, really nourishing and um, loving environment. And I got home and opened my computer and I saw this yoga festival local to LA where mm -hmm. I lived at the time. And it was all white teachers, including like they had chanting, they had much. And it was all white. It was like, what? I don't understand. Like I just came from this and none of my family or anyone that looks like them is part of this exhibit of what or festival of what yoga is, there's something wrong here. And so I slammed that that my computer closed and I went and I journaled and I wrote a lot of what later became this article that now has been shared by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but at the time I didn't know anyone felt like me. It was called How to Decolonize Your Yoga Practice. And that was like all of what's wrong what I was seeing, what I was feeling, and how I felt like a stranger in this practice in the West that actually has been practiced by me and folks like me, you know, and our family members and ancestors for thousands of years. And then I talked to more people after publishing that, and folks were like, yeah, I don't feel welcome in, in yoga class. 
I don't feel like my aunts, you know, when I talk to them, they're like, I wear saris. And in India, you can practice yoga, asana too, and a sari. But in the West, they're like, I wouldn't fit in. Or other South Asian friends or Asian friends who like were curvy or our bodies aren't, you know, like normative in, in ways that you see or we don't have the clothes that are what's represented as doing yoga in the West. And so those were some of those moments where I was like, there's a mismatch. And what's practiced, like with hot yoga and power yoga, it's so fitness focused, it's so body focused and diet culture focused that it's also actually appropriating and diminishing what yoga yeah. truly can be. And and a lot of us, like even from within the culture, we don't even like we don't we don't we get erased actually. Like because if we were to take up space it threatens dominant culture and what they're able to do with that appropriation. And so then I started to talk to other Asian yoga teachers, South Asian yoga teachers who were like, actually, those festivals won't hire me because I'm not a, a kirtanwala or like a, a vocal artist or a mantra artist. I chant as a personal practice, but I don't perform, right? But my friends and colleagues who do devotional performance it's not just you know it's like all of it art and devotion they wouldn't get hired by those same festivals wow. imagine that right like wow. and so and they would sometimes be told you sound too authentic so there was a real real issue and everyone suffers because yoga has been around for thousands of years and none of us own it right or are our like it didn't come to any one person it came through and it's a liberation yeah. practice for everyone and when we're practicing it in its fullness all of us mm -hmm. stand to benefit but none of us were benefiting <laughs> so i knew it had to change yeah and tell me a little bit about that anger that like oof like it's like when I feel angry being the only person of color in these white spaces, it's like a deep like inner burning in my belly. And then it's like the immediate like wanting to lash out, but then the guilt and then the shame. And I feel like this anger is very much specific to marginalized folks. It's like, how did how do I deal with this anger? And then I look around and I'm like, no, I'm very much angry at like the given my surroundings. So how do you even today like cope or like move through that anger? Yeah, I mean, just to be really real, I felt it this morning, right? Like looking at, because I'm trying to raise funds for a project that with the intention of foregrounding folks of color and authentic yoga practices. And it's really hard to get things off the ground without resources. We all know this. Mm -hmm. um, but then I was looking at Lululemon and some other yoga companies, you know, mm. just that are out there that make millions and millions and more than that, like billions of dollars. And they're not funding, like I can name a bunch of amazing projects like Dejol Yoga or Ganesh Space or like places, you know, that are, you know, mental health for Asian and South Asian folks. Like they're not funding us. And yet mm. they're literally appropriating and exploiting the spiritual and cultural resources that come from our cultures and our people. And that makes me furious. And so I 
for folks who are listening, you can maybe hear the smile in my voice. Like I feel like I smile at, it's like my defense mechanism. Like I am a very smiling person and sometimes I'm smiling to deal with how frustrated I am. Um, but also there's days like today where I just am like, this sucks, you know, and, and there's no other way around it. And I need to just be with my journal and vent and cry and maybe call a friend um, and not bypass that because it takes so much more for us to keep going and to, you know, the fact that I think any marginalized folks, any underestimated folks have done anything like we need to all have medals <laughs> we should all have awards because it takes so much against these forces that are set against us to keep going so yeah I don't I don't know if I have an answer to that I'm wondering <laughs> like a like a really great answer because it I'm in it I'm in the struggle of it yeah and I affirm you when it is I asked because literally same for me as well and it's like this deep, it's like a nuanced, unique anger that we feel. And I always like to ask because I'm like, I don't have one way to deal with it either. Um, and it feels really uncomfortable. And even just sitting with it feels really uncomfortable. Um, but I love that you said what you said because I go through the same thing. I'll journal, I'll call a friend. And I feel like it's through that shared anger, like that witnessing, like I also feel that anger. Mm -hmm. There's a weird comfort to it as well. Yeah. Uh, I see you and I see that you're doing the damn thing. And at the same time, I'm also angry as well. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the community is healing. And also, I will say, like, I'm trying to unpack the the overperforming, particularly as an immigrant and particularly, I think, as Asian kind of cultural norm of needing to just do more or do better or perform yeah. to to overcome so the mm -hmm. deficit. Like it's not my deficit, it's not your deficit. Like this is a deficit that has existed and that we inherited because of these systems of oppression. But my habit energy has been in the past to just do more and work harder. And I'm like, mm, that's not actually serving us. How can I like take the time to rest, take the time to grieve, take the time to just have fun and be enjoy, you know, in queer BIPOC community, like dance and play and um, practice. And maybe the solutions will come from there or maybe they won't, you know, but, but that too um is how I deal with that, that rage and that grief because I I'm I'm like I feel done with over over efforting. Yes. And tell me a little bit more about um the harm that is created. Even like I don't know, like I'm I'm gonna just say I don't know the language. I don't know the correct language, but like even karmically or just like in the lineage of like your practice of when we aren't paying homage or honoring the lineages lineages of where yoga has came from. So when we appropriate, when we don't hire BIPOC healers or BIPOC teachers, you know, when we're creating that harm, are there consequences to that? Is there spiritual karmic consequences to these mm -hmm. things? Yeah. I mean... When I started to do a little bit of research into cultural appropriation and also the legacy of 
mm. colonial exploitation of, for example, yeah. Indian culture. Like if we would just look at Britain, where it had economic rule and then political rule, there's an economist named Utsa Pike who estimated that Britain extracted, I think it was $43 billion in resources over those years of political wow. and economic rule of India. And so if we translate that to today, like how does a country come back from that yeah. level of theft from their resources? And, the, and that and Utsapak was just analyzing, you know, and pouring over. I think it took the this economist like years. I think it was six or eight years of looking through, or maybe even more, all of the the colonial like ledger books, right? To literally be able to actually get to that that number. But when we look at like cultural resources, spiritual resources, um, mental health, physical health, emotional resources, it's so profound, that level of extraction that isn't done, right? Like Britain left India economically and politically, mm -hmm. but the West and white folks, just to be, you know, folks from the dominant culture yeah. are still extracting and still benefiting mm -hmm. off those riches that come from Asian, South Asian countries and cultures and people. And so it's hard to quantify, I think, that kind of harm. Um, yeah. But I do think we can say like billions of dollars, right? That there's harm materially in terms of exploitation and extraction and definitely a call for reparations so for mm -hmm. folks who are not asian south asian like to be like if you're teaching meditation if you're teaching yoga if you're benefiting in any way if you own a mala bead company right or um or teach any you know even therapists who incorporate mindfulness or meditation yeah. or yoga as part of your practices to have a reparations relationship with uh, in my Estimation, and this is because the way I, I've been trained is yoga is not just for personal liberation, it's for collective liberation. Mm -hmm. So for me, the reparations I do are to India, right, to actually the homeland of where yoga came, but also to organizations here and now locally that like are working for caste equity or mental health mm -hmm. or Asian South Asian folks. So it's not just one you know, relationship, but also relationships of um, of those folks doing the work on the ground. So, karma, karma. I I think I'm. I have to just say, I think that I can't directly answer that because it feels like that gets into something more on the level of like a a guru shishya relationship mm, <laughs> like a bit yeah. more like there's there's definitely impact and i think we know like we know and we feel when we're doing something that's in alignment and when it's out of alignment with ourselves with the a practice that we love like if we love yoga it's like how can we be more in alignment and then with our communities um yeah. Yeah, there there are a lot of impacts. And there also are really clear ways that we can repair that harm and we can act with a hinsa for, for creating non-harm. So I stumbled upon something recently that's honestly changed my mornings for the better. 
Have you ever heard of Magic Mind? Well, before I was guzzling down coffee like there was no tomorrow. But now I just pop open this little green shot with my first cup of matcha in the morning. It's got a surprisingly good taste and just slides right into my usual morning routine. Being as swamped as I am, it has been a freaking game changer. Seriously, give Magic Mind a go. It's become my little morning magic trick. Go to www.magicmind.co forward slash conscious kitchen and get up to 56% off your subscription for the next 10 days with our code CK podcast. See you there. Oh, yes. And to that, I wanted to ask this question because it came up when you were when you were answering this past one. So Mm. for context, I go on TikTok, I go on social media and now more than ever, it feels like so many people are talking about spirituality in whatever domination it is, right? So manifestation, for example, or that's a big one, or just like, you know, calling in your reality, just like a lot of spirituality I've been seeing on um, social media. I've also noticed in my own practice that a lot of the things that I'm seeing doesn't come from a certain denomination, but very much so like this is a new age type thing, right? Um, I saw this one post the other day saying that some people here are actually star seeds. And I'm like, really? Like, okay. And then I see where these practices are coming from, the origin of them. And I'm like, oh, capitalism. Or mm-hmm. saying that money will solve our problems if we just manifest more of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this language is what I've been seeing. And I'm so curious to hear your take on it because um, your lineage and your practice comes from one of the oldest spiritual teachings um and i want to say this um before before passing it on to you my teacher says this um when it comes down to devoting my time to a lineage which is does this lineage factually produce enlightened beings um and following that route um and so i i look at what i'm seeing on social media of materialism and wealth and all of that and i compare it to these practices and I'm like what's the middle ground what Mm. is what is right and what is wrong um in my own journey did that land or how does that really does I'm just really sitting with that like does this lineage produce realized beings and I think there's so many ways to take that in terms of like realization could be commitment to acting for liberation for others mm. as well yeah. right and does and so some of the things that you're describing i see those too that's around manifestation or whatever it's so self-focused and a lot of the yoga knowledge that's out there you know it's very physically focused but the ones that are going deeper it's still very like me 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 self-care and to me that's not that's not going to produce uh actual liberation for that person even if they're so disconnected from other beings from the earth from you know all of the the really deep and dire needs for justice and equity that exist and honestly too a lot of those teachings like the kind of new age ones are appropriated versions of like the Tao Te Ching Mm -hmm. Vedic wisdom and they're just put into and kind of twisted and packaged in this new 
language like Starseed or whatever that then gets used to basically further a neoliberal agenda of capitalist exploitation and feeds very vulnerable and impressionable young people a story that they will be different. It's kind of like that pressure cooker analogy of like, one person will succeed, one of us will get the lottery. And sure, maybe one of us will, you know, but what about everyone else that's just stuck in that boiling water and the earth is heating up and like, you know, this is not actually leading us to liberation. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And oh my god, this is so, so good. I wanted to also ask you, what are some people, who are some people that have really inspired your journey from maybe the beginning to now that you are like, wow, I can really turn to this to this teacher whenever I feel a little bit lost? Yeah, I've been lucky to have many teachers. Um, and some of them are like my friends and contemporaries, and some of them are now ancestors. And uh, so some of my earliest teachers in yoga are, um, I would say, the the Vini Yoga tradition and TKV Desikatar studying mm-hmm. in that lineage in India. And then also um, Shankarji, who is one of my main teachers, who is teaches as a Hindu Brahmin, teaches yoga to Dalit and outcast folks. And so isn't someone who is available to find on social because that's a very dangerous yeah. proposition actually because of Hindu yeah. fundamentalism and the ways that yoga is used uh, today to oppress as well. You know, yeah. anything can be a tool or a weapon. And unfortunately, sometimes yoga is used as a weapon in a, in a yeah. nationalist agenda. So Shankarji also, and that I went into his story in part because that modeling, you know, and I learned with him, he said, take yoga and take it and share it in the places that it's needed most where you live Mm -hmm. for the people you're here to serve. And I've never Mm -hmm. forgotten that. And I do get to go back and connect, but, um, but he's not someone that folks could necessarily find um, easily. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has been a big influence for me and Thich Nhat Hanh's books. I also got to study directly with him. And um, wow. I feel like, yeah, so wow. his community, what's powerful about Thich Nhat Hanh is, and Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist, a Zen Vietnamese Buddhist monk um, who is an ancestor now. But his teaching, I remember really appreciating the way that he is modernizing Buddhist mm. concepts for today, like engaged in the world, Buddhism for social justice, really. And he said, he's known to have said, the next Buddha will not be a person, it'll be a community. And you can really feel mm. that in the practice center. So they're a wonderful place if folks are looking for a place to actually go. There's different retreat centers. And again, this is a Buddhism, um, but Let's be clear, Buddha would would not have called himself a Buddhist. I don't even know if Buddha would have liked that we call ourselves Buddhists yeah. because he wanted us. He was a, re- a wandering renunciate, just like many of the early yoga practitioners. They had so much in common. And, and so 
in a way, I see Buddha as a prototypical yogi, right? Like, and mm-hmm. and an example of a life that we can learn from and follow. And there is so much overlapping between Buddhism and and um, yogic philosophy. Of course, there are differences too, but those communities I find very nourishing and, and folks can access those. They're they're done a really good job of making them accessible and in many ways inclusive. That's always a work in progress. Um, contemporary folks that I look to are like Patrice Cullors, who I grew up mm. with and is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter and does a lot of work around abolition um, Janaya Future Khan also does work around abolition. And then creativity-wise, like Alixa and Naima and climbing poetry, um, they intertwine activism and art and expression and a sustainable living. So there's all these wonderful like examples, I feel like, of folks who are living their values um, through their activism and through their work. And then in yoga... Dejal, um, Dejal Yoga and Jaisal, they have Yoga is Dead podcast, another wonderful podcast. And there's there's so many, Melissa Shah, Find Your Breath, um, Indu Aurora, who is um, a colleague who just is so steeped in the tradition. Acharya Shunya is another one. Um, I have actually a resource list <laughs> I'd be happy to share because I love sharing um sharing folks who are doing incredible work. Zabi Yamasaki, who does trauma-informed yoga and yoga for survivors, actual trauma, right? There's just actually this abundance of us, you know, like we're out here, we're doing it. We have been doing it for, you know, decades, many of us, and some folks are newer and that's great too. Like it doesn't mean anything if someone's been doing it for a year or someone's been doing it for 20 in terms of, like, I think there's just um, what's important is acknowledging and understanding if someone's like, oh, I can't find any teachers of color. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not because we're not here. That's because we're not, you know, platformed. Um, yeah. I'm curious for yeah. you that same question, like, who who inspires you or who do you look to? Yes. And thank you for sharing all of those because I'm going to check them out. And it's true. I love what you mentioned about we're us being out here. And yeah. it's just a matter of doing the extra digging for most most white folks, especially. Right. Yeah. And for me, I love Thich Nhat Hanh. When you said you practice with Thich Nhat Hanh, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like you receive the transmissions from Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, for me, um, Right now, it's been um, um, Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron um, and Ram Das have been the two that I've really been following a lot. Um, and Sadi Simone is one of my past teachers who actually taught the somatic method. And I just love, I just love when teachers intertwine what's happening now and activism into mm. spirituality. Um, because activism is the most spiritual thing, in my opinion, we can do in this lifetime because we're mm-hmm. uplifting all other human beings and it becomes a selfless act of liberation. Um, yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you that previous question of what do you think of this self-serving um, main character energy things that I'm seeing on social media because it feels almost totally against what I've been learning. So I'm going to ask you one more question. And... The question is, 
by the way, I'm going to ask this question and to people who are listening. Um, Susanna has so many resources on her Instagram, on her social media. Um, I'm asking this question, but all of the answers are through her content. So, Susanna, <laughs> <laughs> how can can we make yoga way more accessible for people with disabilities and people of color, especially given the Western lens of spirituality that many people are exposed to now? Yeah. I mean, teaching and practicing yoga, that's the full expanse of yoga because yoga itself mm. is always already inherently accessible the the full expanse of it because the way i was taught and the way most yoga teachers not all of course there are some lineages that aren't like this but they're very much like you teach who's in front of you you teach to the student or you teach to the community and so if that community in front of you isn't wanting to do a lot of physical movement you teach pranayama or breath work if the community in front of you wants to connect through music or devotion or like connecting to the divine, you teach through mantra and chanting and bhakti and maybe story, you know, like so much of accessibility, I think, is really paying attention to who we're serving and who's in front of us. And then also like the full expanse of the practice and bridging that connection. And so for me, what a great yoga teacher is, is someone who is always going deep into their own practice. So then they can be that bridge, be like, oh, this community needs this. Let me bring these tools forward. And we don't have to be experts. Like in the trainings that I run, right? Like I run teacher trainings with 20, 24 faculty because I'm not an expert in everything and nor should I be. Um, there's yeah. things I'm really great at like translating yoga philosophy into daily life for social justice and service mm -hmm. and then like mantra or sanskrit or even anatomy i have a very great student level um and i would say even like advanced student understanding but i don't need to teach those things all the time i can bring in co-teachers and faculty right and so for for folks too in terms of accessibility I actually think it's collaboration. Like it's yeah. deepening our practice, opening up to more of what yoga is, and then collaborating, um, which is the heart of part of what yoga philosophy guides us to as well with building community as, you know, part of our practice. So good. I have one more question because yeah, yeah, yeah. one more question. This is Oh, I, I have a mirage of questions, but this is the one question I'll, I'll ask, which is in terms of mantras, for example, because for me, I am I am a newbie. I am like step one beginner. And um, as I attend like kirtans or as I learn more about, you know, these practices, does it make a difference, for example, if I say a mantra in Sanskrit or in English, like do these things matter like in terms of our own practice to learn like for example the sanskrit mantra and say that um or or does it matter if i say it in english or you know things like that for our own practice i don't know if that landed it does yes and 
you know, Sanskrit is a vibrational language. It's a sacred language. And even just the the bija mantras, the seed sounds like om or vam or lam have so much power. And mm-hmm. when we, there are, there are many lineages and teachers who say, if you're not chanting in Sanskrit, you're actually yeah. not getting the full benefit of the yeah. of the mantra. And there are even some who say, if you're chanting in another language, it's appropriating yeah. or it's like not paying yeah. the full respect. I think it's, you know, unpacking that would be a whole other conversation because there's yeah. there's so much to that that I think we can explore. But the essence is with especially with mantra, is like build a relationship with the mantra. Um, do mm-hmm. your best to pronounce it correctly if it's in Sanskrit. Yeah. And also the essence and the energy transmits with intention. And if chanting in Sanskrit isn't accessible, then yeah, chant in, you know, practice in whatever language is accessible to you. Um, And it does make, I do believe it makes a difference. It can take us further learning the actual slokas, the actual chants, the meanings, the sounds. There's a lot of depth there, a lot of symbolism there. And, you know, there are chants like the Gayatri Mantra. It's been practiced for thousands of years. And there is a reason for that. Kind of like what you were saying your teacher said, there's, there's actual evidence of these different shlokas or mantras unlocking liberation for countless beings. And so we can tap into that if we're studying and practicing within um, with that. I think the word I want to use is devotion, like devotion mm-hmm. at like being devoted students. Oh, Susanna, I just want to say it has been an honor and a joy to be able to interview you today. I received so much from this and and I needed to hear everything you said today for my own sake and for my own practice. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm going to end with this final question. How can folks continue to support you and where can we find you? Mm-hmm. First, I just want to say thank you so much for um, for reflecting so much appreciation and um and validation, I feel like I needed to hear it too, because it, like I mentioned, it's one of those days where I'm like, oh my goodness, how do we do this work? And this is why, and this is how, you know, we're building it. And for folks who are listening, who are like, yeah, I feel that. And I have this feeling for my indigenous traditions or my culture, like, yes, we're here for you. We support you. We're cheering you on. And um, let's let's just keep keep moving forward. I think that is huge and is key. And then I do a lot of like free education on Instagram and that's a great place to connect with me and um, just kind of check out the fun stuff that I'm doing. I also have a free masterclass, a few free masterclasses that folks can watch and, um, and learn if you want to go deeper and, um, I think those are the main the main ways and you can find those at like my link in bio or on my website. Well, thank you so 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 much Susanna. It truly honor and a joy. Everyone please who's listening, please check out Susanna's work and also find other folks to support who are doing the work to, you know, reclaim so much of our spiritual practices and um yeah thank you thank you everyone for listening